Hey, we're glad you guys are here. Welcome to class. What we're doing this summer is a series essentially looking at foundational realities for Christianity. Kind of a, a basic set of things we want to understand. What do we, what's, the, what's the nature of the gospel? What's the spirit-filled life? Uh, what have we done? How do we have assurance of salvation? Um, what's, the great what's the greatest commandment? A whole bunch of different things we've been covering. And tonight, or today rather, it's morning, it's daytime, we're going to shift from what we call the great commandment to the great commission. Uh, a co what's a, what's any, forget the greatness, just what's a commission? If you had a commission, what would that be? Marching orders. Marching orders, good. What'd you say, Susan? Order. Some kind of directive, like, you know, if you're a Star Trek dork, you know, it's like the prime directive. It's whatever, what's this thing that we're supposed to do? Well, we get, we get different commissions, different orders, different, hey, I need you to go accomplish this, some task to accomplish. This we call the Great Commission because it is the greatest commission, because it's the overarching, fundamental, primary obligation that Jesus gave to his church. And it's, um, it, some of you may have heard, have been taught on this a thousand times, maybe, and others of you perhaps never at all, but I bet we're going to look at some stuff that might be new to you today. Um, if I were to say to turn, open your Bibles to the Great Commission, there is not one Great Commission passage. There's actually several, but it's probable, I could probably guess where you're most likely to go. Um, so if we were to say, open your Bible to the Great Commission, what, what, what's your intuition on that? Where would you guys go? Matthew 28. Matthew 28. Okay, good. Do you know, if, if it was 100 years ago, do you know where you would have gone? If we were to say, open your Bibles to the Great Commission, and it's like, you know, the late 1800s or early 1900s, do you know where you would have turned? Matthew. Not Matthew 28. It's a good guess. But it's not. So we, 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 in our generation, we think almost exclusively of the Great Commission in terms of Matthew 28, 18 to 20, which is where we are going to look because it is 2021, and so we're a product of our own time. But if you went back a, a century, do you know? Do you know? Anybody know? You'd probably go to Mark's. Um, every, each one of the gospel writers essentially has some version of this, although Luke postpones his out of the end of Luke and into Acts 1. But at different times, at different, different parts, different kind of ways that it gets framed have been, been captured. In Matthew 28, which we're going to see, the focus is taking the gospel. Well, how does it go? Does anybody have it memorized? Matthew 28, 18 to 20? Anybody know how it goes? Go. You want to give it a shot, Ray? Yeah, go. Go. Yeah, okay, that's the essence of it. Yeah, yeah. It begins with Jesus saying, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, Ray, is your big moment? Go and make disciples of all nations, right? Baptize, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age, right? Is this familiar to you? Maybe in some mangled up translation. Uh, the way that Mark frames it is not so, it's, it's a little bit different. Instead of go to all the nations, it's go to every creature. And it's just a little bit of a different focus, okay? You go to Luke's and you're going to move it into chapter, I mean, from Luke, you're going to go, his is not in Luke, it's really in Acts 1. Where Jesus says that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. And all three of those. And then John, John does everything different. So we won't, if we go into John's vision of this, we'll, it'll, it'll distract us. But every time what, what, the, what the gospel writers are capturing is Jesus, the, the final thing that he says after his death, after his resurrection, before he ascends to the Father is, okay, it's go time. Let's make the gospel known to everyone. Everywhere. And so turn to Matthew 28. We're going to take a look at his version. Make a few observations about the way that Matthew frames it out and what he captures here and what it means for us today. 
We'll do a little bit of a history of this, both biblical history and then church history of the Great Commission. So go to Matthew 28, 18 to 20, and we'll make a couple observations as we go. You got it? This is good stuff. So it says, verse 18, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Okay, Blendy, we've talked about this 900 times. What does this mean? This means that Jesus became king. This means that Jesus became king, right? Don't miss this. When, he's, when Jesus says, all authority has been given to me, he doesn't mean 10 million years ago all authority was given to me. He's referencing something that just happened. By means of his death and resurrection, he has been granted dominion over all. Okay? This is, this is, we tend to think he's always been king. He's always been God, but he has just been granted the kingship of the world. Just now. Philippians 2, I've quoted this a thousand times. He, he goes to the lowest place, right? Jesus humbles himself, is obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalts him to the highest place and gives him the name that's above every name. So what I want you to see is this is like an inaugural address for a new king. And he comes in and he says, all right, listen up. I'm in charge of everything. The cosmos is mine. Psalm 2 says, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. That just happened. And so Jesus says, okay, I'm the king. I reign. I rule. It all belongs to me. I get everything I want. And here's what I want. Write this down. Go everywhere and tell everyone that I am king. That the old king, this wicked, malicious tyrant has been deposed. And there is a new king. And all they need to do, all you have to do to leave this old kingdom of misery and suffering and to come into this new kingdom of love and light is to turn from all of your badness, accept my, am my amnesty, forgiveness, and you can become a citizen of this new kingdom. Now go. Tell everybody there's a new king in town. That's what the Great Commission is. Make sense? I'm the king. I'm in charge. The world is mine. Go tell everyone. And then when he gives them a little bit more particularity to it, this is what might be less known. Jesus is framing out this great commission, this crucial paradigm, this fundamental obligation that he gives to his followers. And he's going to base it on two very interesting Old Testament texts. And one, you got a pretty good shot at getting one of these. And then you got a dim shot of getting the second one, right? Because it's kind of obscure, but it's actually really very interesting to see. So let's, let's just get some ideas on the table. If you were to run Matthew 28, 18 to 20 through a sieve of the Old Testament, there are two primary texts that are framing it, that, he's, that, he's, that form the skeletal structure of the Great Commission, okay? And so let's just, just get some options on the table. What do you think he's working from? What... What provides the structure for the Great Commission? And you can, I love, you can guess wrong. It's fun to get wrong guesses on the way to right guesses. Or maybe you've ever heard this. Or maybe you've just noticed something once when you're reading your Bible. You're like, man, that sounds familiar. Okay, Ten Commandments. Let's get a whole bunch. So we got Ten Commandments. Is he basing on Ten Commandments? What else did I hear? Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. That's what Kelly guessed last night. So you're in good company. But she was wrong. So it's okay. So, 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 so. It's okay, it's good. Yeah. The uh, presentation to Abraham that through his line all the nations Okay, so great. So you got kind of, so Genesis, okay, this is excellent. So Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 
or where God is kind of giving this blessing to Abraham. I will bless you and you will be a blessing. All the nations of the earth we bless through you. This is great. Okay, these are gonna, we're going to get a lot of good answers here. Very good. John? Daniel it's okay it is a good guess if ever if i ever ask a question just to say just daniel seven probably um and so uh i don't think that's the structure of what he's building from but it is absolutely the case that daniel seven is where jesus becomes king right the Son of Man has led into his presence. He's given glory, you know, honor, dominion, power. So maybe that first line of all authority has been given to me, we can give Daniel 7. Yes. Okay, so props to Daniel 7. And Blendy is laughing at you because she knows I just love that text. Okay? So keep going. So you're doing great. So Old Testament basis for this thing. Where are we, where are we getting this from? We got the Shema. We got the, we got, so we got Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 6, Daniel 7, uh, Genesis 12, Genesis 15. What else would you guys add? Where are we getting this thing from? Want some, want some other, want some clues? Okay, Brad, Brad. Uh, creation. Uh, uh, to, yeah, to subdue the earth. Okay. Oh, I like this answer because that's the right answer. Okay. So well done, Brad. Woo! Somebody give that man a kiss. Just give him a kiss. Okay, or not. Okay. So, so. Uh, the, the first, the first, this is really interesting. The very first foundational reality for the Great Commission is what we call the creation mandate. So go to Genesis chapter 1. This is interesting. The very first chapter of your Bible, Genesis chapter 1. This, and I'll, I'll show you how, why this is so meaningful. And we'll pick it up. Uh, let's just, we'll just kind of zero in. We'll just, we won't do a lot of context. 128. So this is the, the world has just been created. Man has been created. And God is giving Adam and Eve this kind of paradigm. Hey, here's, here's what your life is about, okay? So Genesis 1, 28. God blessed them. This is Adam and Eve. And he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Okay? Now before that makes sense, you got to know that what Adam... what. Adam and Eve, when they are made, what's peculiar about them? He made, you know, like mounds and fish and cows and flowers. What's weird about Adam and Eve? Robin? They're made in the image of God. They are image bearers, okay? So they are, do you want to add something? Go for it. They don't have any clothes? That's right. That is incredibly significant. They are stark naked. Okay, so that's good news, okay? So they're in a perfect world, and they're naked. You just draw what you want, conclusions out of that, okay? So they're image bearers. They're image bearers. What they fundamentally are is image bearers. And so when God says multiply, what are they supposed to go, what are they making? More image bearers, okay? So God makes the world. He wants his glory to be seen and known. He wants his beauty and his excellence to be seen in every corner. There's a promise in Habakkuk that the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. We got one. Now we got two image bearers. It's not enough. We need little things that point to him and that reflect him, that, that are um, imitations of, reflectors back of his glory and majesty everywhere let's put them in europe let's put them in asia let's put them in, let's, everywhere so go make more image bearers number one fill the earth and then what's the second obligation <laughs> fill the earth and <laughs> and subdue it okay to subdue it is to say okay it's chaotic 
It's not the way it's supposed to be. That's weird to us, right? Because everything he made is good. But recognize that when he made the world, it was good, but it wasn't perfect. It was without sin, but it wasn't yet mature, right? There were trees, yes, but there were no two-by-fours. And it's hard to make things out of trees. you got to cut them down. you got to mill them up. There were rocks, yes, but nobody yet figured out how to, like, smelt iron ore, right? There were, you know, there was grass, yes, but nobody had figured out how to, like, you know, pull out the fibers and make a thing and make a loom and make cloth and do stuff, right? So their job is to subdue the world, to take it from a state of chaos and to bring it into mature perfection, right? Two big things. Make more image bearers and then bring everything to maturity under his gracious reign. Rule over it. Have dominion. Subdue the earth. Got these two things? So far so good? Now, with that, with that paradigm in your brain, this is what God wanted the world to do. He makes the world. Here it is. Got the entire planet. You got two people. Here's your commission, if you will. Go make people that look like me and make everything the way that it's supposed to be. Okay? With that paradigm in mind, flash forward to the Great Commission. And Jesus is going to tell the disciples, what are they, they going to do? So what are they supposed to go make? Okay, now let's pause for a second. How, what, what, is, what does making disciples, how does that reflect this cultural mandate? What's the correspondence here from making disciples? Say it again. Disciples are image bearers, okay? So in the first instance, we're going to make image bearers out of nothing or out of like a sperm and an egg, right? And in the second instance, we're going to take these distorted image bearers and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna fix it. We're going to bring it back to the way that it's supposed to be. That when we are doing evangelism, when we are talking to people about Jesus, one of the things that we are doing is we are, one of the primary things we're doing is we are restoring that image that was lost in the fall. Go make image bearers. Go fix the distorted image bearers back to look like me, right? He's predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son, right? Image bearing is part and parcel of the spread of the gospel. He made it, we were to make image bearers in the first place. Everything goes all super crazy. And now our task is the exact same task that it was in the beginning. Let's fill the earth with people that look like Jesus. That's what we're doing, right? Second thing, what else, is, what else are we supposed to do? As we're full, in, in the, go back to the Great Commission. So make disciples. And what do we, what do we teach the disciples to do? Make uh, Yes, but there's a specific language here. What is it? To observe all that I. To observe all that I commanded you. Teach them to obey, to observe all that I commanded you to. What does that correspond to? In the creation mandate. What is it? Yeah, the, the, and, and the subduing of the earth. In the same way that we, we're making image bearers and we're going to make everything the way it's supposed to be, we're going to subdue this chaos. Over here, we're going to make disciples and we're going to teach them to obey. It's the exact same paradigm. That what God has wanted from day one is what he will is determined to get before the end of the game is that we're going to flood the planet with people who look like him and we're going to bring everything under his gracious reign. Everything will be the way he wants it to be. And he says, okay, I'm the king of all things. The cosmos is mine. Now get at it. Go do it. Go make image bearers and subdue the world. Go make disciples and teach them to obey. 
this is what he's been doing. And it's the, it's the same thing from nothing has changed from day one till now. This has always been his purpose. It's just that because of sin and the corruption of all things, Jesus had to go to a cross to bring it all, bring it all to pass. And now he's discharged us to go make it happen. Okay? Make sense? Okay, questions? Is that weird? Anybody like, I don't know, I, don't know. I can't land that. We good? We good, we good? Yeah, Rita? So, so this fits into politics. If you're an image bearer, then you're not wacko. If you're an image bearer, you're not wacko? Yeah, you're trying to bear the image of Christ, and he would be wacko. Well, no, but he would look wacko, right? So, I'm not sure where you go, but like... You know, I mean, like someone that's like over the top of Biden, or over the top of Trump. And it's like they're... Okay, okay. So let me, so they're a Christian, but that's also their identity. Right, okay. Gotcha, gotcha, okay. So, yes, yeah, so, so if we have a consciousness that we are already, without trying, we are image bearers, then, it be, then it's incumbent upon us to be as faithful in that role as we can, right? If I am a mirror, I don't want to be like a funhouse mirror. I don't want to be like this all wonky, bent thing. And there's all sorts of ways that we can bend our mirrors so that when I, when I show you, hey, this is what it looks like, and you see this caricature, if I am a caricature, then that's bad news. And there's a thousand ways that we can screw that up. One of those ways is we can become super political into some, you know, on, on any extreme. Um, but it, it could also be that I'm, you know, garishly interested in, you know, the lavish spending of money or that I'm... All that I care about is, uh, you know, my physical appearance. Or it could be that, like, my whole world, everything, 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 all day, every day is talking about my children, right? So we could take anything. It doesn't need to be politics. We could take anything, any caricature. It's like you draw a picture of me, and then you, and if I've got a big nose, you give me, like, a really big nose in my caricature. Then it's like, well, like, you've distorted the image. And we do that. Well, we might zero in on some aspect that we think is good and imagine that's because we think that's what God is like. And then we, we give him a really big nose even though he's perhaps a little more proportionate than we have than we might imagine him to be. Is that am I capturing what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. It's like it, it helps you be aware. <coughs> well, I, I was thinking politics because I've been wrestling. Yeah. But you're right, it's in every area of life. Yes. Why bear the image of Christ to those around you, you have to be careful. Right. We have to be thoughtful. Am I is my sense of what I ought to be and therefore what I imagine God to be. Um, is it distorted by some influence other than him? You know, it's, it's been said that God made us in his own image, and we've been returning the favor ever since, you know? And so we imagine this is what he's like, but it's like, well, I don't know. That might be what your particular socio-cultural economic system is like, and you imagine that's what he is. But he, of course, stands above and outside of all those things. And we want to do the work to really behold him, because it's as we gaze at him that we are transformed more and more into his likeness. And that's really what we, what we want to do. All right? And per Great Commission, that's what we want to help others go through that process as well. Because it's not just about me. Plenty of our lives we're inclined to think is just about me. But this is about helping other people make these same discoveries. Okay? So we're going to glue this all together in a minute. But first, the foundation of the Great Commission is the cultural mandate, Genesis 1. You see it? Fill the earth, subdue it. Make disciples, teach them to obey. This is the paradigm that, he, that he's expressing. There's a second paradigm that I think is maybe more interesting because it's so off the beaten path, but it also is going to inform where we go with this. So anybody want to take another? We, maybe you, have you guys expended your guesses on what's the Old Testament basis for this thing? 
Anybody want to throw us throw another stab in the dark? Hey, Kim. Okay, do this. Do you know, this, this would be strange in your Bible, but if you were a Jew, what would be the last chapter of your Bible? And I'll give you a hint. We shuffled the deck. So the answer is not Malachi. Deuteronomy? Uh, not Deuteronomy either. You guys know, before we kind of, we rearranged the Old Testament. To a Jew, what was the last chapter of the Bible? Anybody know? No, no, no. It's 2 Chronicles 36. It's the end of the history. So go to 2 Chronicles 36. So in your Bible, if you, if, if you find Ezra, Nehemiah, you're right before it. To a Jew, the very last chapter is, is 2 Chronicles 36. And so what Jesus is, and this is where, by the way, where Jesus is going to quote from. He chooses the first chapter and the last chapter of the Old Testament. And he smashes them together and he gives us the Great Commission. Tell me if you don't hear the echo. In fact, before we read this, I'm just going to read you, I'm going to read you Matthew 28 again. And then I want you to listen. Tell me if you don't think that he, tell me if you think I'm making this up. Matthew 28, 18 to 20 says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Okay? Tell me if you don't hear an echo here. Second Chronicles 36, verse 22. The last paragraph of the Old Testament. And it says this. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Are you guys there? I want you to see it. Second Chronicles 36, 22. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout the realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Hear an echo? Does this sound familiar at all? The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Do you hear how many, how many phrases are directly lifted from that? Cyrus is saying, God has given me all authority over all the world. He quotes this notion of God being with his people, just as Jesus says, I will be with you always. He says, let him go up. Jesus says, let go and make disciples. The only phrase that doesn't really correspond is he says, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Now, of course, well, we'll see that that actually corresponds quite closely. We've got to unpack it first. What, what is the purpose of a temple, you guys? In the Old Testament, what's, what's the temple? What is it? To meet God. The indwelling of God's spirit. The it is where God lives, right? The dwelling of God's spirit. Robin, what were you going to say? To worship. It's this place of worship. It's the place where he is. It's where we meet him. It's where he is. Whether it's in the tabernacle, whether it's in Solomon's temple. This is the new temple they're going to rebuild because the old one got destroyed when Babylon shows up. And Cyrus, P.S., isn't a Jew. This is weird, okay? This is, now we're inviting the Gentiles to the party. This is strange. They're going to go build a temple. And Jesus is taking this passage... About, he takes the very first chapter of the Bible, he takes the very last chapter of the Bible, and he smashes them together, and he says, in the same way that God's initial call was to fill the earth with image bearers and to bring the world under his dominion, 
in the beginning of the story. And at the end of the story, we see that that gets greater focus because what he is doing is he's building a place where God will dwell so that his people may meet him. The temple is the place where God lives. It is the place where the people can be with God. He uses this double pattern to frame out the orders to us, which suggests not only are we to fill the earth with image bearers and bring it under, under order to subdue it, right? Bring everything the way it's supposed to be. But we are building the temple. And indeed, we are. Because the temple, the new place that the Holy Spirit dwells, it's not in a building. It's not in a structure. It's not in Jerusalem. It's everywhere that his people go. That when we go out, one second, Kelly, when we go out and we share the gospel, when we make disciples, when we fulfill what Jesus is calling us to do, doing so is a fulfillment of what Cyrus is, telling, is saying that he's about to do. To build a place where God dwells in the midst of the people. This is where the Great Commission is. We're filling the earth with his image bearers. We're subduing the world to make it the way, the way he wants it to be. We're introducing God to people so that God may dwell among them. All of these things, from the, and he, he's, he's very intentionally, he's picking the first chapter and the last chapter. This is an A to Z sort of thing. He's saying, this is what we've always been about. But now the fulfillment of the ages is upon us. So go do it. This is the mission. Okay, now first, Kelly. But, and don't forget to you that those temple builders uh, were in captivity and had to be released from captivity. Yes. That's right. And that's, okay, so that's good. So the history of what, what Kelly's saying is when Cyrus blows into town, Cyrus is the new king who has, who has come in. Okay, uh, let me see how much history here. So they had been subjugated under Babylon, under Nebuchadnezzar, which was really, really, really bad news. It was a miserable time. This is when all the kids get dragged off. They destroy the city, wreck the temple. It's the whole thing that's recorded in Daniel. Um, and then when Cyrus blows into town, he is no longer of Nebuchadnezzar. He's not of Babylon. He is of Persia. He is the new king that frees them from this old king who was evil and bad and had subjugated them. And under his new freedom, he says, all right, no more subjugation of the people of God. Rather, we will exalt the people of God. And we're going to build a temple where all of you can worship again. Right? And so Cyrus is this very strange Gentile. This is such an odd thing. But he is a, this rescuer from slavery. And Jesus, who is the one who is rescuing us from slavery, is patterning himself against that. Did I capture what you meant, what you were su suggesting there? Okay. All true. Brad. Yeah, sort of along the same lines. I just think it's really hugely significant that Cyrus isn't a Jew. Right? It's so strange. This is no longer a private club. This is we're opening this thing up. The time for this to be, you know, worldwide. Everybody. That's exactly right. And so it's so so it's it's on the one hand, it's really, really weird that it's not a Jew that's doing this. Right? You would think it would be, uh, I mean, these are God's people. But we go back to Genesis 12, we go back to Genesis 15, the plan all along from the very, very beginning was I will bless you and you will bless the nations. But it's, it's so strange that when Jesus actually shows up and then when the disciples begin to preach the gospel to non-Jews, all the Jews are like, whoa, what about that? I don't know. Hang on a second. And we talked about this last week. That's where the whole Galatian controversy comes from. So God has been consistent in using a peculiar people, the Jews, with a vision to reaching the entire world. And this is just one more link in that chain. Absolutely true. Okay, how you doing? Making sense? And I know this is a little bit academic and whatever, but we're gonna try to land this in a way that actually helps you understand why this should drive your days, why the Great Commission is for you. It really is. 
It wasn't just for the disciples. It wasn't just for the 12. It's for us. This is the, this is the focal point of God's eternal purposes. From the day of creation to the very closing words of the Old Testament, this is what he has always been about. His name proclaimed everywhere to everyone so that all will be the way it's supposed to be and so that people could be in union with him. Full stop. That's, the, that's what the entire game is about. Okay, Kim. I just also find it interesting about Cyrus that Isaiah actually prophesied about him by name. Yeah, that's weird, right? Yes. Cyrus is a peculiar character. He's like a Tom Bombadil in the Old Testament, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's all, these, all these incredible things that converge on this guy. It makes me wonder, like, we always say he's not a Jew, he's not a... But does he follow Yahweh? Does he really... You know, is he just fulfilling a role, or is, is he redeemed? Does he surrender, is bend the knee to, to Yahweh himself? And I don't know, but I'm in, I wouldn't, it wouldn't be a hard sell that he does, you know? He has such a role here. Stuart? Well, he said that God of heaven has given him. Obviously, at some level, had a relationship. Yeah. To know that where it is, totally. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, do you know what, what's Persia today? It's Iran. Does that strike any of you as a little bit ironic? Like, is there any nation on the earth that hates Israel more than Iran? And yet Cyrus, king of Persia, was this enormous source of blessing. Wouldn't it be amazing if that comes full circle, right? If the, 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 those of the Persian kingdom today would come to know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Maybe some of you will have some hand in that. Okay, so you got the, you got the picture, you got the paradigm. This is what God is doing from the very beginning. Fill the earth, subdue it. Jesus says, make disciples, teach them to obey. Because, by the way, I'm king. What he's, he's patterning it after is Cyrus's proclamation, right? I will be with you. Let these people go up. We're going to build the temple. That's what we're doing. We are building a temple. We're creating this place where the Spirit of God lives, where people can meet him. Okay? Now, all great, all glorious. Then, what happens in history? What ha- how did we do? What do you know about the history of the fulfillment of the Great Commission? How, how would you, how would you share it? How do we do in the first century? Not good. You said not good. Okay. The first century we did pretty well. We really did. Like right out of the gate, you, the spread of the gospel in the first two or three hundred years is astonishing. Like like radical, radical speed of growth. Right, Christine. Didn't the spread of the gospel, the Great Commission, really? really come about from the blood of the martyrs? I mean, it was really persecution that caused them to go and disperse? Yeah, so there were, there were a number of factors, and I'm sure this is far more complex than, than, I, than I understand, much less could express, but certainly the blood of the martyrs has something to do with it. Not only, though, that they died, but also that they lived in such radically generous ways. When we, the, what, we've, what we have captured of the early writings, both of Christians and non-Christians, about the church for the first couple of centuries was... Uh, radical hospitality, radical generosity, radical willing, not that they always suffered, but a willingness to suffer, to seek the good of others. And, and, and the gospels, the spread of the gospel from this, you know, 12 people or, you know, 500 people, depending on what you want to consider as a ground zero, is like exponentially great. And it's because we were an incredibly kind, humble, forgiving, self-sacrificial people. And it, and it, it absolutely turned the world upside down. And we did pretty well for the first several hundred years, I would say, though it was very, very costly to do so. Eventually, the, well, what happens next? What do you know? What's your, what do you know about church history after, say, the 300s, 400s, 500s, 600s? Do you have 
Is that a black spot for you? Do you have any sense of it? Institutional church, state religion, yeah. empire church. Empire, very good, right? So, I mean, on the, on the one hand, it's really good news when Rome steps in and says, okay, we're officially Christian, click. It's great for persecution, right? We really appreciate that. It's not just that people stop cutting off your noses. That's really nice. But it wasn't great because if, if, the, if Rome is Christian, then everybody's a Christian. Well, I don't need to share the gospel with you because you're a Christian, de facto. And that's pretty bad. That was pretty bad for us. We're not altogether unlike that in certain parts of our country, right? If you're born in the South, you're just a Christian, right? And it's, not, it's really not unlike that. And that's not, that's not really great news. So, John? That's, that's what I was uh, going to mention. King, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Yeah. And when that is, again, there's, we don't want to like, look down our noses at that too much because it's, it, it is, when Rome allows that, that a lot of the creeds are be able to produce because it's no longer so dangerous to be a Christian. Some things can get done now. But it was pretty bad for evangelism. Pretty bad for the spread of authentic Christianity, for sure. The water started getting into the boat. This is true. Brad? Which I think culminated with the Crusades, where we were decided we should dish out some That's right. And so, yeah, instead of being persecuted, we became, became persecutors. And now you get into all kinds of crazy stuff through the Middle Ages. Now, there's some good stuff in there. There's, it's never all good. Not, you know, have you noticed? Nothing's all good and nothing's all bad. Everything's always a mix. But sometimes the ratios are pretty unfavorable, right? And for a long time, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of years, the Great Commission as a driving imperative for the church is lost. Lost, altogether lost. And there's one guy, we got, now we've got to come forward like 1,500 years, come forward a long, long time. There's one guy that we would say is the father of modern missions, which is to say he was a British man who essentially rediscovered the Great Commission in like the 1700s. Do you know who that is? William Carey. All right, what do you know about William Carey? He, he did that in 1792. Okay, good job. Some of that was extrapolated out later on, that the word go would be as you go. Yes. And that created some more debate. Yes. So you guys, William, William Carey is like one of the great heroes of the faith. And in the 1700s, so he was, I think he was like a shoemaker. And he made himself a map of the world, like a leather map over the wall of his like cobbler factory. And he was deeply grieved by the fact that the gospel was known, broadly known throughout Europe, certainly broadly known in, you know, in Great Britain, but that all of the heathen, right, would, and forgive the, uh, you know, somewhat pejorative anachronisms here, but like all of the heathen of India, of China, of other parts of the world, like they're apart from Christ. There's, nobody's going to tell them. Nobody even thinks that they should go and tell them. It's not that like nobody wants to be a missionary. It's that there isn't missionaryism. There's no such thing. There's just, there is absolutely no such thing. And so he wants to begin what would really be the first mission society in over a thousand years. There's nothing, zero nothing anywhere in the world. There's nobody on the planet that has any interest or any concern to travel to any other part of the world. So the gospel will spread maybe from my house to my next door neighbor, maybe, or maybe not. Or maybe I will raise my children to be Christians. But there's absolutely nobody going. And so he, for, for years, is agonizing over this reality. That the Great Commission is not being fulfilled. It's not even being considered. It's like no more relevant to the church than pick some random chapter than Leviticus 17 is to you. 
right? I mean, he's like, whatever, it's just another thing. So he writes a paper and he gives a speech. Here's the title of his paper. Do you know that back in the day, papers had long titles? Do you know this? Here's the title of his paper. It is an inquiry into the obligation of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathens in which the religious state of the different nations of the world, the success of former undertakings, and the practicability of further undertakings are considered. Okay. It's better known as the inquiry. Let me just give you that first part. It is an inquiry into the obligation of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathens. Okay? Think means as in ends and means. The prevailing idea at the time was if God wants to convert the heathen, then he'll do it. But he's not going to do it through me. I will not be a means to that end. He'll just, whatever. If he wants to do it, he would do it. And if he hasn't done it, maybe he doesn't want to. So shut up about it. And he says, well, hang on a second. Is that the way God accomplishes his purposes? Do you think God wants you to be fed? Did you get up this morning and go to work? Did somebody grind some wheat? God uses means to accomplish his ends. He doesn't just drop stuff out of the sky. And so if in your own life, if your life, if there's some end that you want and you use means to accomplish that end, is it so strange to think that God might be pleased to use us as a means to accomplish an end that he desires. And in fact, if he already said that he desires it, do we need him to say it again? He already answered the question. I'm going to read you. I'd be tempting to read you this entire thing, but it's 70 pages long. So, so but I'm going to read you a little bit. Just listen, okay? Stay with me. This is what he says. So you got you to understand. Here's his context. It's the 1700s, and nobody anywhere is traveling to India. Ever. It doesn't even exist as a category in your mind. There's no frontier missions. There's no Anglican frontier missions. There's, there's no campus crusade. There's no, uh, what do the Baptists call their thing? Uh, what are they? International mission board. Nothing like that. Here's what he says. Our Lord Jesus, a little before his departure, commissioned his apostles to go and to teach all nations. Or as another evangelist expresses it, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's Mark's version. This commission was as extensive as possible and laid them under obligation to disperse themselves into every country of the habitable globe and to preach to all the inhabitants without exception or limitation. They accordingly went forth in obedience to the command and the power of God evidently wrought with them. Okay, he's going back to the first century. They were to go everywhere. There were no limitations. Get it done. And so they did. Many attempts of the same kind have been made since their day, which have been attended with various success. But the work has not been taken up or prosecuted of late years with that zeal and perseverance with which the primitive Christians went about it. It seems as if many thought that the commission was sufficiently put in execution for what the apostles and others have done and that we have enough to do to attend to the salvation of our own countrymen. And that if God intends the salvation of the heathen, he will some way or other bring them to the gospel or the gospel to them. You hear him? Making sense? It seems like everybody thinks it's not my job. And so God will do what he's pleased to do through some other means. Now he continues. It is thus 
that multitudes sit at ease and give themselves no concern about the far greater part of their fellow sinners who to this day are lost in ignorance and idolatry. There seems also to be an opinion existing in the minds of some that because the apostles were extraordinary officers and have no proper successors, and because many things which were right for them to do which would be utterly unwarrantable by us, therefore it may not be immediately binding on us to execute the commission, though it was so upon them. Basically, some people are like, well, that was for them, not for us. The apostles were like, the apostles, they were amazing. Who am I? They did it. I don't have to do it. And so nothing is done. But he goes on and he makes this observation. He makes many observations. I'll just give you this one. He says, but if the command of Christ to teach all nations extends only to the apostles, okay, if, if you're right, that we don't have anything to do here, that was just for them, if it extends only to the apostles, well then doubtless the promise of the divine presence in this work must be so limited. Meaning, when Jesus says, preach the gospel to everyone, everywhere, and lo, I will be with you for the next hundred years. And lo, I will be with you until the age of the apostles has come to an end. And lo, I will be with you in the first century. Then doubtless, his presence must be so limited. But this is worded in such a manner as expressly precludes such an idea. For Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always to the end of the world. And if his promise of being with us extends to the end of the world, so also must the commission to preach the gospel to every creature and every nation, to make disciples and to subdue the earth. The game isn't over. And those that are perishing right now through our neglect, are doing so on our watch. The Great Commission is not done. There is much to be done. It is to be done right here, right now, in Roanoke. It's why we run the Alpha Course. It starts September 21st. Who are your friends? Right here. They don't need to go to India to find people that don't know Jesus. There are people in Roanoke right here. Who do you know that you could invite them to come? Hey, come with me once a week. We get a free dinner. We have great conversation. The Great Commission is being fulfilled right now in Roanoke. And do you guys know, do you know that Will and Becky are going to Cambodia? Like, and they're not coming back? Do you know this? Is this, I hope it's not a secret. Will and Becky are, like, this, this hangs upon their hearts. So Will and Becky and their sweet little kids, they're packing up. And they are going to move to Cambodia and plant a church among a people that don't know Jesus. Will and Becky. I'm sorry, McLaughlin, our youth pastors. Well, our youth pastor. Whitney is the other youth pastor. But Will and, so if you don't know, Will and, Will and Becky McLaughlin, who are on our staff, Will's one of our priests, uh, leads our youth ministry. This, this, this imperative hangs heavy upon them. And it's a, not an easy thing to take your little kids, I mean little, little tiny humans, and to move into a jungle in Southeast Asia. But Jesus said he would be with them always to the very ends of the age. Some of you... Some of you might be leaving. You don't know that. You may not know it yet, but God may lay upon your hearts a burden that in your retirement, you've got the time. That there's some place that your career, there's some opportunity for you to go. And if not to go, but how amazing would it be to go? Maybe some of you are going to give 
more sacrificially than you had previously thought because you've got all these resources. We're so rich. We're loaded. Maybe it's a bunch of money that you're stacking up that you're going to just cut a check so that somebody that can go, that is willing to go, that has the gift of language, is going to actually go and do it. I just got a text this morning from a friend of mine who said that he has, they just had a contractor. I'll just, in fact, I'll read you what he said. They had a contractor in. They were planning on doing an addition on their home and doing a bunch of work in the backyard. And that would be lovely. I mean, that's great. But he says, let's see. It's all very exciting, but it wasn't sitting right with either of us individually. I finally said something to my wife. I know we have the money, blah, 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 justifications, but it just feels really off. And I feel like the young people and others that are watching what we do, and it really matters. And she said, I know me too. Why? Listen to this. She says, why would we be building more stuff that will burn away here on earth when at this stage of life we should be straining toward heaven and using every dime we have to build a kingdom that is eternal? And so they're going to like reapportion some money, right? So maybe some of you are going to go. Maybe some of you are going to give. Maybe all of you are going to be praying. Like, Lord, is there a part of the world? Maybe you need to commit. I'm going to pray every day for Cambodia. That the work, if Will is going to go all the way there, wouldn't it be wonderful if his work was just born along? The Spirit of God is showing up. That hearts are softened. People are responding. Maybe you need to send. Maybe your children are going to go. When your kid comes home from college and says, hey, mom, dad, I want to go on a summer mission with Campus Crusade, that you don't freak out on them, right? You cut them a check and you support them. And you, you're less worried about them getting the internship so they can get the dream job so you can brag about it to your friends. And instead you release them to go take the gospel to the nation. The game is afoot, y'all. It's not over. He's with us to the very end of the age. And this commission, this call to make disciples of every nation. It's not over until he comes back. And in fact, that's specifically why he comes back. He says this in Matthew 24. Jesus says, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And so if you want him to come back, the single best thing you can do is to accelerate the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Because that's the thing upon which it all hangs. All right? Dig it? This is what we do. This is what you signed up for when you became a Christian. The proclamation of his name to everyone, everywhere, at all times, until he comes back. Lord Jesus, would you raise up from this very body the resources, the money, the prayers, the heart, the love, that your name would be heralded. Lord, we pray for Will and Becky. We pray that many others from this congregation would go pray that our Alpha class, even though there's not a going to another part of the world, there is a going to our neighbor to ask them, to go knock on their door and invite them to come. Lord, would we be increasingly and more deeply the Great Commission Church. We love you. Amen. Amen.